out, but I, but, I, but I know that somebody here needs to hear some of the things that I'm getting ready to say. Getting ready to say. So, so as, as, as I stood over there, the, the, the side, and isn't communion just wonderful? I'm on, I'm, on, I'm going to talk about it a little bit more in a little bit, but I'm on, uh, I'm on day 19 of my fast. This is called fasting approved food right here. If you're on an extended fast like me and you're hungry, you won't bother me one bit if you come up here for a piece of bread. You help yourself. Little shot glasses of juice. Just going to line them up just like that. Just like I used to in a different way. How's that? <laughs> when you walk in it, you know how to pray about it. When you suffer from it, you find a faith for it. When, when you walk in it, you know how to pray about it. When you suffer from it, you find a faith for it. That's the phrase that God just dropped into my heart as I was standing over there during the worship set for communion. Then Vanessa got up. I didn't share that with her and talked about some people here. You might be in a situation or a circumstance that you've not chosen. I knew right then I've really got to talk about this. And so earlier today I was reading, if you've got your Bible, you can swipe or turn or however you get there. This is from yesterday. If you're reading through the Bible in a year with us, we're, uh, yesterday we were, we were in Genesis. And this is chapter 20. Then it says, then Abimelech said, look over my land and choose any place where you would like to live. He's talking to Abraham. And he, and he said to Sarah, look, I'm giving your brother a thousand pieces of silver in the presence of all these witnesses, right? Because we know they really were brother and sister in a sense because they had the, the same father but a, a different mother. And so it says, this is to compensate you for any wrong that I may have done to you, and this will settle any claim against me, and your reputation is cleared. Now, now what this is about, right, because Abraham has this terrible problem with courage. As he comes into a new city, he's afraid because his wife is so beautiful that the king's going to have him killed so he can take his wife. And so, uh, you know, what every woman's hoping that the, the, the chivalry of her husband, right, pretend that you're my sister so no one will kill me, right? Whatever happens to you, you're on your own, but let's just worry about me. So, so she keeps getting taken by these men because of her, her, her beauty, and then God protects her in that moment, and then the person finds out that you know, he had deceived them even though he had told a half-truth. Half-truths are still lies. Come on. Half-truths are still lies. And so, but listen to what happens. Listen to what happens. It says, then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female, female servants, so that they could have children. For the Lord had caused all the women to be infertile because of what had happened with Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now, I don't know if that sticks out to you. It, it, it jumps out to me a little bit because Abraham and Sarah were having their own problems with infertility. Are you with me? God has spoken to them early on in their life that they are going to be the parents of nations, and yet here they are, probably by this time nearing 100, based on where the text goes next, no children. Not, not one, not, no children. So they have this promise that they're going to be the, the parents of nations, but not one child has been born to them. And so here is, is God bringing judgment upon a people, and the judgment that he levied upon this king and his household is, is infertility. Now, you would think that Abraham would be the last person in the world who should be praying for people with infertility, right? Because he's been praying for himself for decades, and nothing's happened. 
Don't you even love the fact that Abraham even wanted to step into that moment of prayer? I'm just asking, right, for you, in the stuff that you're suffering with right now, we know that there's some people here tonight, the circumstances that you're walking in, the pain of your today, when somebody else is walking through that same thing, do you have faith well up in your heart for that person? Is there something inside of you that says, even though God hasn't done it for me, let's pray that he's going to do it for you. It is an amazing, it is one of the greatest moments of faith that you will find in Scripture because Abraham is praying out of his lack and not out of his provision. Now, if it had happened after, right, they had gotten pregnant, when, when, when he was 100 years old and Sarah was in her 90s, you could see where they would say, oh, let us pray for you because what God has done for me. There is a faith that we find in the suffering of life that's very different from the faith that you can find in your victories. And for some of you here tonight, I'm telling you, the circumstance that you're walking through, it is one of God's greatest gifts that he has given to you because when you walk in it, you know how to pray about it. And when you suffer from it, you find a faith for it. And so whatever the circumstance that you're facing, whatever the difficulty that you have, I want to believe with you tonight that there's going to be a faith that comes alive inside of you that you're going to be able to give that gift to other people. I'm going to have uh, KG come up. I want him on the keyboard a little bit because it always sounds better, right? When... So I want to give you a couple of verses to go with this. This is out of 2 Corinthians. It's chapter 1. Since this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy, and I'm writing to God's church in Corinth and to all his holy people throughout Greece, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Now listen to what he says. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. So no way said, he comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given. Do you see it in here? It does not say, it does not say that God answers every prayer that you have in your moment of need so that you have the faith that you need to minister to others. The, the implication of the text is you remain in your place of suffering and God comforts you in that place of lack that you continue to stand in. And when you find God in that place of being in a desperate need, there is something that you discover of who God is that enables you to begin to minister to other people that you would not have been able to do if you had not walked through that hardship and through that tragic circumstance. So what he says, for the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ Jesus. All right, let me give you another one. This is Matthew 11. This is Matthew 11, verse 28. You're, you're familiar with this. It says, then Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden that I give you is light. 
we talk about this verse often, this, this verse here in this, in this text. If you've been a part of us for any amount of time, you've heard us teach on this before. That word for burden there in the back end of that verse is the same word that's used in the Greek to describe a ship's cargo. So, so, so you and I both know that a ship's cargo, there's nothing light about it, right? You and I both know that if, if you were to go down to the naval shipyard and unload any of the ships that are in dock right there, right, the largest dry dock in the world, what if you took the biggest one? What if you took the biggest aircraft carrier that you could find that would be in dry dock and you took everything that was on that ship and you found a place here in Newport News that was big enough to pile it up and you could weigh it. If they made a scale, a scale big enough to weigh it, how many of you would say, oh, that's, that's light? That's light, right? We, we would be overwhelmed by the enormity of the weight that's on that ship. But to the ship, to the ship, it's light because the ship was designed to bear the weight of the burden. We, we misunderstand this verse oftentimes, I think. I think we misunderstand this verse because we think Jesus is saying to us, if we come to him, there's an ease to life because the weightiness that we once had to bear ourselves up under, that he's going to deliver us from it. It's true for the burdens that you're carrying that you're not supposed to. He, he will ask you to lay those things down. But some of the burdens that you're carrying are the burdens that he's destined you to walk in. And he doesn't change the weight of the burden. He changes the substance of your life. He transforms you so that you can become that ship that's able to bear the weight of the cargo that you have. Why? Because when you walk in it, you know how to pray about it, and when you suffer from it, you find a faith for it. All right, so this is what I want to do right here. It's what I want to do. If you're someone, and I know this takes a little bit of courage. I get that. I know that it, being conspicuous is not easy. I know that some of you tonight, you walked in, you saw it was crowded, you got excited about that because you could disappear into the crowd a little bit, right? I'm just, if you're here tonight, and some of these things that I'm saying to you resonate with you, I'm just going to ask you to stand because I want to pray for you. If you're here tonight, and, and, and your, your circumstance, the situation of your life right now would be like Vanessa shared, there's circumstances that you're in that it's not what you would have chosen. We, we want to pray for you. We want to pray for you tonight that God's going to help you see that circumstance in a different way. You with me? Come on. Father, we lift up every person that's standing up in this room tonight. We lift up every person who's standing right now, and we just speak over their lives. We declare the truth of your word over their life that when we walk in it, we learn how to pray about it, and when we suffer from it, we find a faith for it, and we just believe in Jesus' name that every person that's standing right now, that they're going to begin to see the circumstance and the hardship of their life as a gift that you've given to them to prepare them, oh God, for the gift of faith that they're supposed to give someone else. That every person that's standing in this room right now is an Abraham. Every person that's standing in this room right now is a Sarah. Every person that's standing in this room right now is someone that, whose lives could be rewritten in the text of that narrative that we just read that they're laboring and suffering in a place of wondering why won't you keep the promise that you've made to me and we know God that sometimes you give us comfort in our lack you don't meet our need because you're trying to change who we are so that we can have the kind of impact in people's lives around us that you've destined us to touch we pray, Father, that every person that's standing in this room right now, that in their pain, healing is going to go to other people. We pray for every person in this room right now, that the burden that they carry is going to be a gift of deliverance to someone else. 
we declare tonight in Jesus' name that just as it was in that story, that people that are standing here, that they're not going to be embittered that other people got their answer first. That they're not going to be embittered that, that, that in their moment of praying for someone else for the same need that they have, that when they see the answer come too quickly for them, when they've been waiting for too long, that they're not going to look on with envy, but you're going to release grace from their heart and they're going to be able to celebrate your goodness in the lives of other people. Father, we declare tonight over every person that's here, over every person that's here, that their burden is going to become a directional focus in their life to enable them to love people in deeper ways than they've ever loved before. That people are going to stand up in eternity and they're going to tell a story. And the names of the people that are here right now standing up are going to be in that story. Abimelech, he told a story. We know he told a story to his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and generations that to come. We know that it was recorded in history as kings would do. And those histor histories would be written to generations in their family, the lines that would come. And we know that he would tell a story of a man by the name of Abraham who came and laid his hands upon him and prayed for him in a moment where he and his household was suffering and that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, moved and breathed upon them in such a profound way that it changed their circumstance in an instant. We declare tonight in Jesus' name that every person that's standing here is going to be an Abraham and a Sarah in somebody else's story. That their name is going to be told. That their name is going to be written. That there's going to be conversations around fireplaces at Christmas time for generations to come. That let me tell you something that happened to your great-grandfather in 2013. In Jesus' name, come on. If you believe that for yourself, then say amen. Come on. Can you, can you clap for that? Can you clap for that? Come on. Thank you, KG. You're the man. Come on, you can clap for him. We're, we like to say thank you to people. All right, come on. We got time. All right, we're good. All right, this is out of Matthew 13, 52. Matthew 13, 52. These are the verses that we've been digging around in over the last few weeks that, that, that we knew that God was speaking to us about creating a series so that when people were new to the City Life Church that we would be able to give them a sermon series when they're asking the question, who is the City Life Church? We'd be able to put this in their hand and say, listen to this series. This is going to talk not just about what we believe because you can find that on the website, but you're going to learn about who we are. You're going to learn about some of our passions and some of the things that, that we value deeply at the City Life Church. And so we're calling this sermon series His House. This is the third week, His House. And we're saying that just as there are things about your house that make it unique so that when people are there, they know where they are and whose house that they're in, God's house should be the same. That when people come to the church, which we call His House, there should be some unique, distinctive things that cause people to, I know that I'm in God's house because and fill in the blank. And then some things, too, beyond that, that we would say, I know that I'm in God's house of the City Life Church because there's some things that are unique from every church, church to church. All right, so Matthew 13, 52. I'm just going to read the one at the end, the New Living Translation. It says, Then he added, Every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. 
new gems of truth as well as old. So we've identified four things in this verse that we're saying as a church should be hallmarks of his house. Hallmarks of his house. So, so somebody that's fasting, let's, let's narrow the playing field a little bit. Somebody who's fasting who can give me the three that we've already talked about. Anybody? Hannah, come on, quick draw. Because I've got a Cracker Barrel gift card for you that you can set aside. I would just buy $10 worth of bacon, but you, 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 you decide how you want to spend. So what, what are the three that we've covered so far? Come on, house of discipleship, house of home ownership, and a house of new treasure. So if you want to hear about what those things represent, if you want to hear about what those things mean, you can get the last couple of weeks, and well, last week, and then we skip for the, the first year of the service, and the, the last week of December is where we launched it. And we talk about those three. But the fourth one is this. The fourth one is this. These are called old treasures. Now, now, last week we kind of introduced this, this concept to you that, that here in the text where it says that he brings out of his storeroom treasures both new and old, that, that every new treasure doesn't become an old treasure, meaning that there's things that you treasure for a season. There are things that are important to you for a certain time, and there, there might be a place in time where it's not a treasure anymore, and it's not something that, that, that you value. We talk about worship here is going to be an old treasure for us. Expressive, passionate worship is always going to be a treasure of the City Life Church. The certain kinds of songs that we sing and the style of music, that's a new treasure that changes with generation to generation from season to season. So I want to share with you tonight, if we have time, we'll, we'll see how many we get through. I want to share three old treasures of the City Life Church. Three things that have always been a treasure and for generations to come, if Jesus doesn't come back and we pass the vision of the City Life Church on to su successive generations, three things that will always be treasured here. The goodness of God, the potential of people, and the centrality of the church. The goodness of God, the potential of people, and the centrality of the church. So let me talk a little bit about the goodness of God. This is Exodus 34, 6. It says, as he passed in front of Moses, this is speaking of God's glory, his, his presence. It says, he called out. He said, I am the Lord, the Lord, I am a God who is tender and kind, I am gracious, I am slow to get angry, and I am faithful and full of love. That's the New International Reader's Version. Don't you like that God describes himself that way to us? The, the, the first Bible that I really began to read when I made a vow of devotion to become a Christ follower in, in December of 1990, that following year in 1991, somebody gave me uh, the, what was called the book. I've talked about it before. It's like, it was a very loose, like a message Bible kind of Bible, and I was just reading through the Bible, and one of the very first verses I memorized was, was, a, was a verse to this. I don't even remember the, the, uh, the, the text, but I remember the words. It says, where God speaks of himself, I'm a merciful and gracious God slow to anger, rich in steadfast love and truth. It wasn't, that phrase is repeated multiple times in the Old Testament. It wasn't in that one. But I remember coming across that and thinking to myself, this is the God that I want to give my life to. This is the God that I want to serve. This is the God that I want to discover and I want other people to discover. This idea that there is a goodness at the very heart of who God is. And even when it feels like God is being hard towards me, it's because he loves me and he's trying to correct me. This is out of Mark 7, 24. It says, Jesus left that place and went into the vicinity of Tyre. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence a secret. We want to be a church, 
on the peninsula, in this region, that the goodness of God is a secret that's unable to keep. We, we want to be a church in this region. We want to be a church in this area that has such a conviction about the goodness of God through our own story that we're telling in our lives that other people who don't know about it, as if it were a secret, that the revelation of the goodness of God would come to them. Psalm 27.1 is one of our, our anchor verses here as a church. I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But unfortunately, you and I both know, and it's been some of our own personal experiences, that sometimes the church is not a place where we find God to be good. I want to read to you out of, out of John 18. I'm going to beginning in verse 1. It says, After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. And Judas the betrayer knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. And the leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove, and Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. And he says, I am he, Jesus said. Now Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And as Jesus said, listen to this, as he said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. I said, I would have just gone home at that point. You with me? When someone says, I am he, and it just knocks everybody over, you would think that everyone, okay, we're done here, right? Once more he asked, who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said, and since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement that he did not lose a single one of these that you have given to me. Now listen to what it says about Simon Peter. Then Simon Peter drew a sword. He had his concealed carry permit. He drew his sword and slashed off the right ear, right? You never give the sword to the fisherman, right? He's, just, he's got a casting motion, which doesn't really work great in a sword fight. So he slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath, Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given to me? Come on, that sounds a lot like how we started, doesn't it? Now, if, if you were to read this same account and some, uh, some of the other Gospels uh, uh, talk about this same account, and each one of the accounts gives you a little bit different of a detail, and as you put them all together, you get the whole story. And in one of the other Gospel accounts, we find that Jesus bends over, he picks up this person's ear, and he puts it right back on to Malchus's head. Heals him right there on the spot. See, again, so that's the second opportunity you think that people would have to go home, right? You're, you're seeing Jesus. You become to realize he is the living son of God. Now, I love this story because for me, this story is one of the most pro profound texts that speaks to me about the pain and suffering in some people's lives around us. It's, it's a text that tells the story of people because Peter represents the church and in this story, he represents the church in some of its worst moments, contrasted to Jesus, who represents who the church is supposed to come, both by their parallel actions standing in juxtaposition to one another. For many of us, we've, we've been in church settings where we come because we've been told that the church is a place of healing. We've come because we've been told that the church is a place of acceptance. 
We've, we come because we've been told the church is a place of grace. And then the next thing you know, we're standing there crying, holding the side of our head, and we're bleeding because someone's wounded us. Peter here is a picture, I believe, in this narrative, I believe, in this story. It's a picture of how the church sometimes hurts those that they're supposed to be healing. Malchus is you and Malchus is me. If you spend any amount of time in a church for, for, for any part of your life, someone's disappointed you. A leader has failed you. Someone has, has, has probably betrayed you if you've been around long enough because people are people and people make mistakes. And this is a powerful text that's given to us as a church. Now, we're going to make mistakes. If, if We're going to make mistakes as a church, right? Because we're a church that's filled with imperfect people. But what we're saying as a leadership team, may it be God that we would never, may it be that the mistakes that we make never harm other people. May it be that the mistakes that we make never be such that leaves people wounded. Now, I like the fact that it was his ear that was cut off because I think there's some truth in that too. That when you've been hurt by the church, it just makes it hard, hard to hear God. If you've been wounded deeply by a church for any, in any part of your story, you know just as well as I do in that season of being broken and that season of being wounded and that season of feeling like other people have harmed you, it's just hard when we're wounded to hear his voice. And Jesus steps up in this story as a powerful picture to Peter and to the world. The goodness of God is supposed to be a secret that cannot be kept, and they should be finding it first in the church than anywhere else. It's interesting here that he says to Peter, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. I think that's part of his rebuke to Peter, to saying, hey, you're supposed to be an example of the church that gives life, not death. And what we want you to know, if you're here tonight, and you're asking the question, is this a safe place? I'm telling you that it is. Not that we're going to make, not make mistakes. Not that we're going to do everything right. But no one's ever going to pull out a sword and cut off your ear and leave you bleeding and hurting. And, and if they do, we're going to be the church that helps you heal and the church that's brave enough to bring correction to the one who's done the harm just like it happened in the garden. The goodness of God is a treasure at this church. We're going to declare it. We're going to walk in it. We're going to believe for it, and it's going to be a secret that cannot be kept. All right. The goodness of God. All right, let's talk a little bit about the potential of people. I like this one. This is at 1 Samuel 16, 7. We're going to get all these notes uploaded onto the website. So if I'm moving faster, then you can write them down. It'll, it'll be online. 1 Samuel 16, 7. says, what the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Who's he talking about there? Talking about King David, right? When he's a young boy. For I have rejected him. Oh, I'm sorry. He's speaking of one of the other brothers, but he's working his way to David. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So you might be familiar with that story that Samuel comes, God's spoken to him and said, we, it's time to anoint a new king and, 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 and all of David's brothers are, are lined up. 
And every time Samuel gets to one of those brothers, he's thinking this has got to be the one, right? He's tall, he's, he's strong, he, he looks like he could be a great king, and that's where God steps in and says, no, 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 you, you, you don't judge. We don't judge based on their outward appearance. So David comes in from the field, right, the one that everyone has always looked over, and everybody's thinking there's no way that it could be him, but yet it, it was. He was the one. We, we want to be a church that believes in the potential of people not defined by their natural circumstance or their outward appearance, but by the treasure of who they are on the inside that we want God to help us to see. And, and one of the beautiful things about David's story is that it was not hard for him to believe that God had chosen him, but for some of you here, you struggle in a place of always believing that you're not good enough to be the one that God would pick. And we want to be a church that helps you change your perception of yourself. We want to be a church that, that, that begins to give rise to hope in your heart that says, I could be someone that God could use. That I could be someone that God would use to help to build his kingdom. That I could be someone that God would use to do things that I would never thought I would be capable of doing otherwise. In John 1, verse 44, we dug around in this one recently, and so we said we were going to come back to it. So here we are. This is John 1, beginning in verse 44. It says, Philip was from Bethsaida and Andrew in Peter's hometown, and Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael, can, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. And as they approached, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How, how do you know about me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And Jesus asked him, Do you believe this because I told you that I had seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. All of us, when we first encounter Jesus, we encounter him as the person we are under the tree. We, 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 we are found by Christ as a person who's not yet been fully formed and transformed so that we can begin to walk in the callings that God has for us. When David was found in the field, he wasn't yet ready to be the king, but God saw him for who he was going to become and then took him on a journey to make him ready. And we want to be a church that when we see you, when we meet you for the very first time, we don't want to define your potential based on the life that you're living. We want to get a sense for what God has for you in your future and to begin to see you for who you're going to become. And that helps you break free from the patterns of destruction that have you trapped in here today. We're going to be a church that gathers around you and looks at you even in some of your greatest moments of despair and say to you, these things do not define you. You might come in with a terrible addiction. You might come in with an addiction that's plagued your life for your whole life. And we're going to look at you and say, come on, those addictions don't have to define you anymore. 
The work's going to be hard. It's not going to be an easy journey. But God has a person that he wants you to become. And he's going to help you be set free from those things so you can become the person. We see you under the tree because that's where you are. But we have a vision for your tomorrow. When he came to Jesus on that day, he had no idea what Jesus was going to be inviting him into. But Jesus did. One of the 12, right? I mean, here's the son of the living God stepping into history. And, and from the beginning of time, out of all the people that have ever been born, Jesus steps into this particular generation. And of all the people that are on the planet, in that moment, he picks these 12 to be with him. Now, you might read that and say, I wish God would pick me like that. He has. And every other person in, in, in this time, even though their life isn't told us in the Bible, it doesn't mean that their story is any less important than the 12. Because what makes your life important is the life that God has you to live, whether anybody else reads about it or not. And every single one of you, he's found you under the tree. And we want to be a church that looks at you and says, dream big dreams. And don't see your dreams for the filter of who you are, but let God begin to speak to you about what you're supposed to become. And then begin to go on the journey to grow and transform into the person that he's called you to be. So at the, at the City Life Church, we have a phrase that we like to use here. Participation brings transformation. Participation brings transformation. God did not say to Philip and Nathaniel, here, let me give you these list of 48.6 things that you need to go and do. And once you've done them, then, then we can talk a little bit. Then we can talk a little bit, right? He says, hey, I want you to come be a part just as you are, as untrained as you are, as rough around the edges as you might be. And it's going to be as you walk with me participating with me beyond your qualifications that the transformation is going to come. So we're going to be a church. We tell people right up front, we take some chances with people. There's one area of the church where we don't take chances with people, and that's working in the nursery and working with our children, right? We don't take chances with people when it comes to working with kids. They got to do a background check, and we've got the two adult rule. We got all of these things in place. But with you, just so you know, we're going to take lots of chances with you. You might be around some people that in, in moments of serving in ministry and ask yourself the question, I'm not sure this person's really ready to be around others like this, right? They're taking up the offering and they drop the plate and a word comes out of their mouth that you're not used to hearing, right, in the church. And maybe you would think to yourself, I hope they don't let that person take up the offering anymore. We, we, we say to that person, you know, you've been on the schedule for once a month, but we need you on here twice a month, right? Because you need a little bit more participation because there's some more transformation that still needs to come, right? There's a difference between a person who's leading the church in worship and a person who participates on the band. We draw that distinction. A lot of churches don't draw that distinction. I'm not saying those churches are wrong. They have a culture. Right? That's their house, and they've got to do the things that they feel like God's spoken to them. We feel like, as a church, that God's spoken to us. That to step into a place of leadership, yeah, yeah, there's some, there's some places, there's some thresholds that they have to have crossed. But, but to be a part, just to be up front, just to be up front, what's happening up front is no more important than what's happening back there. 
The people that are working in the nursery and changing the diapers that you never meet or never see are no less important than the person that's in the drum cage or on the guitar. Participation brings transformation. And one of the reasons why participation brings transformation is because it puts them around other people who are able to begin to see the change that needs to come. And through loving relationships, you get to have loving conversations with people to help them begin to find the courage that they need and the hope that they need to discover that they don't have to remain who they are. So, so we have a phrase that we like to use here. I use it all the time. But, hey, could I just love on you for a minute, right? That's a phrase that we like to use to say, can I just share some things? And we like to use that phrase because it speaks to our motivation. I want to share these things with you because I love you and I care about you. The City Life Church is going to be a place where we're not afraid to have the hard conversations. The City Life Church is going to be a place where we're not afraid to sit down and talk about awkward things. That's part of what makes relationships real. It's part of what makes relationships true. And it's part of what makes relationships precious. If you're looking for a church that says, I want the goodness of God to be a secret that's impossible to keep, and I want to be a part of a church where they believe in the potential of people and don't hem them in by the brokenness of their present, but is able to believe that God can transform and change them beyond who they are today, I'm just telling you, this is a church where we treasure those things. All right, come on, we got time for one more. I might need another snack, though. All right, let's talk about the centrality of the church. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. You know, I was at the... At the, uh, at, the, at the gun show today, and uh, I, was, uh, I was buying some, some rounds, and, and, the, and the table that we were at, when you, when you made a purchase, they gave you a free sign. So we were walking down the table and looking. It was me and, and Nate and Watney were there, and we were looking at all the, the signs. There were, some were hilarious, right? We were just laughing. And you know, one was, was, my doors are locked not to protect me. They're locked to protect you, right? And, so, so, and, then, and then the one we both ended up liking the, the most was, if you can read this sign, you're within range. Isn't that great? I love it. Probably not for me because I'm not a very good shot. But for most people, if you could read that sign, mine would have to be a lot smaller font for that to be true. But, but all day since I bought that sign, you know what I've been thinking? I've been thinking, I need to write that in the front of all my Bibles. If you're close enough to read this, you're within range. I want to be in range of God's favor. I want to be in range of God's blessing. I want to be in range of his goodness. And when we begin to give our lives to, when we get close enough to read this book, we're in range. And I want to be in range of everything that God wants to fire at me. Come on. So that's why we read so much out of his word every weekend. All right. Because we want you to be in range. All right. Exodus 12. Oh, I like this verse. So, so this is, these are the Israelites. They've been enslaved for, 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 for hundreds of years. God's raised up Moses. The plagues have come. They're about ready to be set free. A nation is going to be born. And we come to verse 4. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood 
and divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. So we know that this communion that we're celebrating every week that I'm snacking on tonight represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. The cup represents, I'm not driving, represents his blood that was shed for you and for me. Now, where do we get that from? We get that from right here. We, we get that from the story. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he was talking to a Jewish crowd and a Jewish audience, and he was saying, hey, this Passover lamb that we've been celebrating as a nation, as a culture, I'm that one. Because we know this last plague was a plague of death that swept across all the Egyptian homes and killed not just the firstborn of their people families, but all of all their livestock as well. And the only way that the death angel would pass over their house would be if the blood of the lamb was on the doorpost of the house. And the blood of the lamb was a sign, come on, that they had been within range of God's grace and death passed over. That's why it's called the Passover. So Jesus steps into history and he says, I'm going to be the lamb that dies once and for all. So that you can take the blood of my sacrifice, apply it to the doorpost of your life, and the judgment of God will always pass over you when it comes to eternity. The judgment of God passing over you doesn't mean that God doesn't ever hold you accountable for your actions, right? There's times where ju the judgment of God stops and rests with us, and we need that to challenge us, right? The judgment of God when it comes to whether or not you're worthy to spend an eternity in paradise, you can never earn that. It's all about what Jesus did for you on a cross. So right here in the story, it says, if your family's not big enough to eat an entire lamb, if your family is too small, because they weren't allowed to throw any of it away, right? If your family is too small, then invite some other neighbors to join you in the meal so that nothing is wasted. Now, I love this verse when we talk about the centrality of the church because for me, for me, even if this was not the calling of my vocation, our family would be right smack dab in the middle of a church just like this. And if we didn't work here, we would come here. Why? Because when I read that story, it, it causes me to beg the question, what kind of crowd do I need to be a part of? I mean, what, what kind of family do I need to be a part of gathering together that rises to the measure of the portion of Jesus? If he's the Passover lamb, how big is he? I'm telling you this, he's big enough to be too much for you by yourself. There should be something inside of us as it were thousands of years ago that when we began to realize this relationship that we've been invited into with Jesus Christ, that there should be something inside of us that says, oh, this is too much just for me. I need to invite some other people to come in and share it with me. We talk about you bringing people that you know who aren't able to be a part of a church many times because of the brokenness and the hurt of their past. We talk, call them the disconnected. We, we're saying go out and find those people and invite them to come in because there's a lot of Jesus on the table and there's a portion for them. 
And those that have made a decision for Christ and have been hurt by the church and disconnected their life from the community of the church, that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not they're going to heaven. That has everything to do with whether or not they've made a vow of devotion to Christ. You don't need the church to get to heaven, but we say it all the time here, but you need the church to bring heaven to earth. You are living less if you're outside of community and you're partaking of a relationship that God never intended to you to consume by yourself. Jesus has no concept for Christianity apart from community. And if you're looking for a church to be a part of, if it's not here, we're okay with that. We'll help you find one somewhere. Do not live your life as a spiritual orphan, not just for you, but you're supposed to be a part of a work of gathering other people. You're supposed to be in a church as part of a family for the blessing that's going to come to your life, but also because you're supposed to gather up other people around you so that they can sit at the table. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I'm just going to read this list. It's going to be online, and I want to read out of a text out of, out of Job before we launch back into a closing song. I just want to lead, read you a list here. We'll talk about some more of these at our annual business meeting at the end of February. We believe in couples in ministry. It's an old treasure for us. We believe that couples serve best when they serve together. We believe that there should be no ceiling based on gender in the church. That your ceiling should be based on giftings and callings, not your gender. We believe in financial objectivity and full disclosure. Our business meeting is one of our best meetings out of the whole year. I know for some of you that's going to be hard for you to believe because you've suffered through a lot of business meetings where you've left with your ear missing and bleeding, right? Come on, not here. We believe in concentric circles of organization that the church is the healthiest when the leaders at the core are healthy. We believe that every ministry should be led by teams of people, not just a person. We believe that as a church, we can reach both the undevoted, which some churches would call the lost. We believe that we can reach the undevoted, the disconnected, and the disciple. No matter where you fall into that list, you don't have to feel, leave feeling like you're a second priority. We believe that if God calls the church to reach all three of those people, that a church can reach all three of them well. We believe in multi-church ministry buildings. No matter where we end up, we rent space here, no matter where we end up, we know that we don't have enough churches and ministry sharing that building with us until we're in each other's way. And we believe that everyone should be all in all the time. All the time. All right, let me read you this verse out of, you can stand. This is out of Job. It's 38. I'm going, to read, I'm going to read multiple verses out of here. Come on. If you're close enough to read this, you're in range. You with me? Where were you? This is God talking to Job, but he's really talking to each of us. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? T -t Tell me if you know so much. Who, who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shout for joy. Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb of creation? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here, your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? 
Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It is rooted in brilliant colors and the light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that is raised in violence. Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Where does light come from and where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? Father, we thank you for these verses as we step into this moment of worship because in those verses we find one of the greatest declarations of your divinity in all of scripture and at the same time we find one of the greatest revelations of our humanity because we know the answer to every one of those questions for us is I don't know those things and then you say in response to us I know that you don't this is why you should be desperate for me. Father, we pray that tonight, as all of us leave this place, we pray that tonight, as we stand here in this place in a moment of sacred worship, God, that there would be something inside of us that would find a sense of desperation for who you are, that you are perfect in all your ways, that there is nothing that you cannot do, that there is no place where I can ever go to hide from your stare, that there is no sin that I've ever committed that you cannot forgive, and there is no hopeless situation where you cannot, through the light of your glory, chase out the despair. We are desperate for you, for all of who you are. We want to be a wash in it and in over our heads in Jesus' name. Come on, let's worship together.